Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. The last time that we saw the Apostle Paul in Athens, he was in the Agora, the marketplace, speaking to whoever happened to be there, and he was confronted by some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And the Stoics and the Epicureans I defined for you last week, and then also told you that the Cynics existed. They were making fun of him and wanted to know what this seed picker was talking about. And he seemed to be a proclaimer of strange deities. That should pretty much remind you where we left off last week. When we pick up this week at verse 19... I want you to see first the centrality that Paul placed on the resurrection. Whenever Paul talks about Christianity, he always places the resurrection right front and center because it is the resurrection of Christ that gives the ultimate validity to all the Christian claims. I mean, Christianity could offer you a great many things. It can offer you eternal life. It can offer you forgiveness of sin. It can offer you a way to make sense of this otherwise senseless life and world. None of that would matter whatsoever if Jesus didn't get up out of the grave. Because he could make all kinds of promises, but there would be no evidence that he actually had the power to fulfill all those promises. All the promises that Christ ever made are verified by the fact that he died and got up again. That is the evidence that God accepted the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. In fact, Paul writing... In 1 Corinthians, I'm going to pick up in 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment, and then we'll get back to Acts and Paul in Athens. Without the resurrection, according to Paul, Christianity is just another series of what we would call wives' tales. It's the resurrection that gives Christianity both its uniqueness, but also its divine character. And I think that's nowhere more evident than what he writes to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He is dealing with the With the Sadducees in particular here, do you know the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Pharisees confirmed ideas like spiritual afterlife, resurrection, angels, those kinds of things. The Sadducees would say that those spiritual elements didn't exist. They would deny the existence of a resurrection or angels, that kind of stuff. The Sadducees then are denying that Christ could have resurrected from the dead because, after all, resurrection doesn't exist. Paul here is arguing back to them that the resurrection must exist because if the resurrection is not a reality, if resurrection from the dead does not exist at all whatsoever, then even Christ could not have resurrected And if Christ did not resurrect, then there are all these consequences, including, as I said, the fact that all the promises he made can't possibly be true. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, 
how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here are the consequences. Number one, our preaching is just vanity. Our preaching is empty, pointless. Our preaching is vain. It's an exercise that appeals to our own egos, but it ultimately adds up to nothing at all. Our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Your faith in Christ, your faith in the afterlife, your faith in the uh, eventual resurrection from the dead, all of that collectively, all the promises of Christianity are all empty. They are all vain. They are all pointless, says Paul, if there is no resurrection of Christ. That's how central the resurrection of Christ is to everything we believe about Christianity. Moreover, verse 15 We are even found to be false witnesses of God. In other words, we're lying about God. We're just out here preaching our fool faces off, saying things that just are not true, and then blaming God for it. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul is arguing, if you are denying the resurrection, the general resurrection, then even Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then your faith is empty, your faith is vain, and our preaching is so vain, so pointless, that we are actually testifying against God because we are saying that God raised Christ, which he did not do, which would mean that we are lying on God. That's how bad our preaching would be if, in fact, Christ is not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still in your sins. I think that's kind of Paul's da-da-da-da moment. Because the reality is, not only is your faith the thing that you are hoping to trade for righteousness in God's economy, not only is that faith completely pointless and empty, but that leaves you in your sinful, depraved state with no hope. There's nothing that's going to wash away your sins. There's nothing that's going to redeem you before God if Christ didn't get up because his resurrection is the evidence, is the proof that God accepted that sacrifice. But if he didn't get up, then God didn't accept that sacrifice and you have nothing to look forward to but absolute judgment. So hell and damnation are your eternity. Just get used to it. You have no hope if the resurrection is not true. Verse 18 says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are not saved. They've perished. Your believing relatives that have died, there's great comfort in knowing that your believing relatives died in the Lord. Because then you can state affirmatively that they are raised to newness of eternal life and they are ever with the Lord and there's There's no more dying, as we sang, no more crying, no more sighing. There's no more death. In fact, God is going to wipe away every tear. All of those great grand promises that we apply to our loved ones who have passed on, that is not true. None of it's true. None of it's valid if Jesus didn't get up from the grave. If there is no resurrection, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have all perished. They've all died. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life also, or in this life only, in other words, Paul is saying, even if you go through this entire human lifetime believing in Christ, but there is no resurrection, then that's all you get. Whatever benefit you got from believing in Christ during this life, that's all you're going to get. Because once you die, he's no hope to you. He's no benefit to you. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men 
most to be pitied because we spent our whole life believing in something that simply does not exist and then we're going to go to the judgment and then we're going to go to the outer darkness and hell forever and we spent our whole lives believing a lie if there is no resurrection you see how important the resurrection is to Paul's theology he says that without the resurrection you just do not have Christianity so whenever Paul went out and preached the gospel it was important for him to say Christ died but then he resurrected the resurrection is the central issue of the gospel and so once Paul gets to the Areopagus where he's encouraged to go by the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers once he gets there they're going to accuse him of saying this man is talking about the resurrection of human beings and that is a brand new idea a brand new concept to the residents of Athens and yet it is central to everything Paul believes Paul never preached Christ not once go through and look at it he never once preached Christ without asserting the resurrection it is central to the message okay so now we're back to Acts and we are in verse 19 where Paul is being encouraged then at the Areopagus in fact let's go back to verse 18 also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him some were saying what would this idle babbler wish to say others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection and that's the part that triggered them that's the part that they really honed in on said the resurrection okay we were okay with the idea that you have your own God who you call Jesus we we're all right with that we have this whole pantheon of gods we have all these different gods we even have a tomb to an unknown God we have so many gods that if you just want to have a God that's fine but you're talking about a God who was also a man we're kind of okay with that because we understand the concept of demigods partly God partly human we're okay with that so far but you're saying that your God was fully man and he died and he raised again came back to life again and the Greeks don't have anything to compete with that the Greeks have nothing like that verse 19 says they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus I told you last week that could be the large flat rock where the Areopagites would gather or it could be that they took him to a particular place or a hall where the Areopagites were assembled and when the council was assembled that was also known as the Areopagus they took him to the Areopagus saying may we know what this new teaching is you've told us something new and we thought we had heard it all we thought we had covered all the gods we have plenty of altars we have plenty of places of worship and you've come in here and told us something we had never conceived of again the resurrection of the dead it's an entirely new concept to them even though they knew that their mythological gods some of them had been raised from the dead that is part of their mythology like for instance Achilles you may have heard the term the Achilles heel so you know the god Achilles after he was killed he was snatched away from his funeral pyre by his divine mother Thetis and she supposedly brought him back to life so they knew within their own mythology the concept of their gods resurrecting but Paul was saying something unique he was saying a man a human being resurrected and as a consequence of his resurrection all we that are in him all we that have faith in him all we that are inhabited by his Holy Spirit we're also going to resurrect this is all brand new to them they want to hear more about it verse 20 says 
Well, verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what this means. And then verse 21, Luke tells us parenthetically why they were so interested. He had said something they had never heard before. And that made them curious. That engaged them. They wanted to know more about it because, verse 21 says, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Tell us something new. We know about the old gods. We know about our mythology. We know about the pantheon. We we know every god that we could conceive of. We've got a temple for him here. And yet you've come in and you've told us this whole new god thing. And that's what we're all about. We always want to know something new. Now, last week I told you that one of the reasons I am so interested in Paul on Mars Hill is because I am convinced that Athenian ancient culture is still alive and well here in modern-day America and the Western world. Last week, I gave you the example of the fact that we still have our idols. Idol worship still runs rampant in the Western world and, in fact, the whole world. Well, here's another place where we see the similarities, where we see the parallels between ancient Athens and today. Because today, in the world, people are much more interested in what is new than what is old. And in fact, one of the major criticisms of Christianity is that it's old. And in fact, you can turn on the TV today, you can dial up the radio, you can turn on the internet today, and you can hear supposedly Christian preachers making up new stuff. And the ones who do that, people flock to hear them because they want to hear something new. They have these Gnostic utterances, these ideas. No one's ever known this before. And so I'm going to tell you something new, and people can't wait to hear something new, some new idea. We even have 24-hour news channels. We have 20-minute news cycles. We're very involved in newness. What is new? One of the best things you can say on a product when you're advertising it. Well, the single best thing you can say is free, especially if you put it in yellow letters against a red backdrop. Free! That'll get people, they can be walking down an aisle at Kroger's, and that word free will leap off the shelf at them, and they'll go, what? what? This is free. What's it free of? But the second best thing you can say is, it's new. It's improved. They can put the exact same toothpaste in the exact same tube and just relabel it as new, and you'll buy that instead of the old one you used to use. Why? Because it's new. What's new about it? Nothing. The packaging is new. They changed some of the language on the packaging. That made it new. So they can sell it on the basis of, this is new. We want new. We're constantly engaged in everything that is unique. We want something that we've never heard before, that we've never seen before. You see it in government all the time. We're not satisfied with the established way that the government works. Instead, we need something new. Well, we've done that before. We've tried that before. Now we need something new. Well, that was the Athenians. The Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something that was new. So you can see why when they heard Paul talk about the resurrection of Jesus, they went, oh, that's new. We've never heard of that before. Well, that means you need to go to the Areopagus because that's the council that sits on any new idea that comes to Athens. So Paul was taken there. Now, I'm going to read out of 2 Timothy for just a moment, and this is going to be a very, very familiar passage to you. It's certainly a passage that I 
reference repeatedly. But here's why we're going to look at it one more time. Paul wrote to Timothy at the end of his life here on earth. It was among the last epistles that Paul wrote were his letters to Timothy. And he passed on the wisdom that he had assembled during his lifetime. And he emphasized the importance of preaching the old stuff. He emphasized preach the word. That word that's been around for hundreds and thousands of years. That word that has been time-tested. That word that has human history behind it and verifying it. Paul said, stick to that. Preach that. Don't be engaged in uniqueness. Don't be worried about newness. Just go back and preach the actual provable word of God. He emphasized the importance of preaching that above everything else. And, of course, Paul, because this is the end of his life, this is after he's been to Athens. This is after he has seen all the new stuff. This is after he has seen the pantheon of gods. This is after he has been affected and heart-sickened by everything that he has seen in Athens. And so I can't help but wonder how much his comments to Timothy were actually affected by his visit to Athens. Here's what he says. 2 Timothy 4, starting at verse 1. I solemnly charge, the NASB adds the word you there, because he is writing to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. Don't miss how important Paul made that. I don't just suggest it. I don't just think this would be a good idea. I charge you, and that I'm doing solemnly. I'm doing it seriously. I am doing it from the innermost core of my knowledge of who God is I solemnly charge you in the very presence of that God and in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, I charge you on the basis of all that. My credibility in this charge is based in the fact that God exists and that Christ exists and that he's going to come and establish his kingdom and by the judgment of the living and the dead. It doesn't get more serious than that. And then Paul equates that level of seriousness to the charge that he places on Timothy, and the charge is preach the word. And then he says, do it all the time. Be ready in season and out of season, which means when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. Be ready all the time to preach the word of God. Don't preach new things. Don't be looking for unique things. Don't be looking for stuff that nobody's ever heard before. Preach what the Bible says. Word for word what the Bible says. Contextually what the Bible says. Historically, what the Bible says, preach the actual word of God. And I charge you by God himself and by Christ and by his kingdom and by the fact that God is going to judge the living and the dead. He's also going to be your judge. Make sure when you stand before him, you're able to say, all I did was send people back to your word. I just preached your word because in the word of God, there is sufficiency for everything you need to know to get you all the way to your everlasting eternity. I don't need to make up something new. I can convince you by just talking fast and being somewhat erudite. I can convince you that if you're a really genuine Christian, that you ought to paint my house. But there's no credibility to that. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. But that is the reason that Paul would say, because Paul does understand the tendency of human beings to want to add their own ideas, their own imagination, their own made-up new stuff. They want to add that to the Bible. And again, you can hear that anywhere and everywhere. So Paul says, preach the word, be ready to preach it in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. That means correct people and call people by the word. Exhort them, reprove them, rebuke them, but do it with great patience 
and instruction. Because people don't just naturally understand the Bible. You have to teach them. And the best way to teach them is to constantly take them back to the word until it starts making sense to them and they're able to sit and read it on their own. I say that because of like the Ethiopian eunuch. When Philip showed up there, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading out of Isaiah and said, who is he talking about, himself or someone else? And he said, do you understand what you're reading? Actually, was the question from Philip. He said, how can I except some man guide me? It is necessary to teach the Bible, which is why the Bible itself says God gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, because teaching is an important element of understanding the Bible correctly and accurately and contextually and historically. So do it with instruction. Do it with teaching, but also do it with great patience. Understand that people aren't all just going to magically get it. They're not all just suddenly going to understand all of it. It's going to take time, and you have to be patient with people, and you have to instruct them over the course sometimes of days or weeks or months, years. So be patient with people and instruct them. Why? Why? Well, this is where I think Paul was so influenced by his visit to Athens because he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Paul uses this phrase, sound doctrine, often. That word sound there is actually a Greek word that means whole or healthy. And he says, that kind of whole healthy teaching, which is all the word doctrine means. Don't be afraid of the word doctrine. It just means instruction and teaching. But the time is going to come, he says, when people are not going to put up with good, sound, healthy teaching. And where do you get good, sound, healthy teaching about God? Well, from the Bible. That's the only place you can get it. And so the importance of preach the word Use the word in order to reprove and rebuke and exhort people. Do it with patience. Do it with instruction because the time is coming when they're not going to put up with sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. In other words... They're going to want something new. It's all they're going to want to hear. Tickle my ears. Tell me something exciting. Tell me something new. I have said for 19 years now, I have stood here and said to people, I got nothing new for you. I got nothing unique. I got the same old story. I've got that same old biblical gospel story. And I'll tell it to you historically, and I'll tell it to you contextually, and I'll tell it to you doctrinally, but it's the same thing. I'm going to tell you various different aspects of it, but it's the same thing. I'm going to tell you how it affects you, and I'm going to tell you how the world doesn't like it, and I'm going to tell you about a biblical worldview, but I'm going to tell you the same thing. It's all whatever you find within the pages of Holy Writ. That's all I'm interested in teaching because I know that the time is here now and has been coming for a long time. But if there's ever been a time when this is demonstrably true, it's now. People just want, if they go to church, they want to have a good time and they want to see a rock band and they want to see lights and show and smoke machines and fog and they want to say, entertain me! (laughs) After all, I'm giving you My money, my entertainment dollar, I could be spending that on all kinds of entertainment. I'm going to spend it on the church, and I'm counting on you to entertain me because I want something new. I don't even mind if you take an ACDC song and sing it in church, which you can find on the Internet these days. I don't even care anymore. Just make it new. Entertain me. It's all about new. It's all about being new. We are stuck in the middle of a culture right now that can't wait for new. The new clothes are here. The new spring line is here. The new shoes are here. The new car is here. I've had this car for a year. I need a new one. 
New, we're so involved with new. So when you read this and you read about ancient Athens, and you read Luke saying that they were so involved in wanting to hear something new, don't just think, oh yeah, well that was them back then. What I'm trying to emphasize is, that's human beings all the time. Human beings don't want to sit still for Bible teaching. Human beings want to be ear-tickled, if in fact that is a proper verb. So, here's what Paul did. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious. Some of your translations will say superstitious in all respects. Now, you can read right past that and kind of miss what Paul just did, but he actually did something immensely clever. He's standing in the council of the elite thinkers in Athens. He might be standing on the stone. He might be standing in the midst of them in a hall somewhere. But they are the thinkers of the day. And they have just accused him of some novelty. You've just told us something we haven't ever heard before. Anybody here ever heard of the Socratic method? Being a lawyer, you would, of course, have heard of the Socratic method. You've also heard of the Socratic method. Okay, well, one of the elements of the Socratic method in argumentation, especially during Greek debate, was that you would turn your opponent's argument back on themselves so that when they accused you, you could demonstrate that they were guilty of the very thing they had accused you of. And that's exactly what Paul did here. They're saying, you're the person who is bringing this novel superstition to us. And then Paul turns around and says, I'm not the superstitious one. You are. And he says, and I can prove it. I'm going to prove you're more superstitious than I am. Now, this word, too religious, is actually the Greek word daimon, which is a combination of two Greek words, the first being fearful and the second word being diamond, from which we get demon. You're too fearful of devils is what that word means. Superstitious doesn't quite do it. In the New Testament, it means a reverencing of gods and divine things. And in a religious sense, it's always in a bad sense. And that's why it's translated superstitious, because they were trying to find a single word in English to translate that single Greek word. But it's a compound Greek word. It would have been better translated. I see that you were altogether too fearful of devils. And because you are so fearful of all these gods and devils and the mythology and all these demigods that you've got, because you're so fearful that one of them might get you, you're attempting to worship all of them, which is why you're so full of temples and altars, and that makes you religiously superstitious. That's why the NASB went with, I see that you're altogether too religious. You're just too superstitious. Now, that idea that human beings are altogether too superstitious and that they will worship everything except the real God even goes back to Paul's writing in the book of Romans, which he also wrote after his visit to Athens. I think his visit to Athens had a lot of effect on many of the things he wrote, but listen to what he wrote in the first chapter of the book of Romans. Romans 1, starting at verse 18, he said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What's the truth? They suppress the word of God. They suppress that old story. And they suppress it because of their unrighteousness. They hold that down because that which is known about God is evident within them, within the heavens, for God has made it evident to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are all clearly seen being understood through what has been made by the universe, by the heavens, by the planets. And as a consequence, they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, even though they could see the demonstration of the existence of God, even though they could look up at the stars, they could see the creation, even though that was adequate witness to hold them guilty, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And what's the result of that? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. What are the Greeks all about? Wisdom. They want wisdom. They, they want to know more. Tell me more new stuff. And they profess themselves to be wise, but they're actually just fools. And how is it demonstrated that they are actually fools? They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. The entire pantheon of Greek and Roman gods all had man-like qualities. They were all a God created after man's image and likeness. The book of Genesis starts with God saying, let us make man in our image. But people who don't know the truth instead create gods after the human image. And that's why you get mythology. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Yeah, down in Egypt, they were worshiping crocodiles and snakes. Some places worship eagles. Some places worship four-footed animals and birds and crawling creatures. Therefore, says verse 24 of Romans 1, therefore, because that's the case, God has given them over to the lusts of their own hearts, and the result is their impurity. So that their own bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So that's his main charge. That the men of Athens, the Areopagites, were so overly religious, so overly superstitious, so fearful of every god and demon that they had come to the point in their love for human wisdom and their fear of every god in their pantheon, that they were willing to worship everything instead of the true God. So when Paul says to them, I perceive that you are altogether too superstitious, not only was he turning their argument back on them, exercising the Socratic method, demonstrating that he himself was very educated in Greek culture, and we're going to see more of that as we continue through his argument. We're going to see that Paul was actually brilliant when it came to Greek culture. After all, he was raised in it. But Paul is indicting them with that comment. They had all the trappings, they had all the traditions, and yet they were devoid of actual faith. The one thing that they could actually exchange for righteousness before an eternally holy God, that was the one thing they didn't have. They had all this worship, they had all the trappings of religion, they have all the altars, they have all the temples, they have all the stuff, what they don't have is faith in Jesus Christ. And as a consequence, all of that religious practice was all vain, was all void, and could ultimately get them nothing but condemnation. As a consequence of all these various different temples and all their different idols, all their different altars, the result of deifying everything is that then nothing is actually deity. Do you understand what I mean? Mm. If you say that 
everything is inherently a God. If you're worshiping everything as if it is deified, then you're reducing everything to a level playing field where nothing is actually supremely God, supremely deity, because you have watered down the whole concept of deity so much. And so when Paul now is going to show them how superstitious they are, he points to this altar they have to an unknown God to demonstrate their their extreme fearfulness. But in the process, he's also going to say, there is one God who is the real God, who is the supreme God, who is the maker of everything. You have all these gods who all individually have power and superiority over one little section of life. You have a God of this, and you have a God of that, and you have a God of plants and nature, and you have a God of animals, and you have a God of little children, and you have a God of the sun, and you have a God of the moon, and you have a God of various different heavenly bodies. You have, you have all these different gods, and Paul is going to say, let me tell you about the God who made everything. You don't need this whole pantheon of gods. What you need to know is the one singular God. For while I was passing through, says verse 23, and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, for years and years and years, I have read that story, and I have understood it as they, in their desire to worship everything, were just generally fearful that they had missed a god, and so they erected an altar to an unknown god. But this is where it really gets interesting. I hope it's been interesting up until now. But... This is where it really gets intriguing because there is an actual history behind this altar to the unknown God. Let me introduce you to Epimenides. Have you ever heard the name Epimenides? Epimenides was a 6th century BC before Christ, a 6th century philosopher and religious prophet and poet He was actually a contemporary of more famous philosophers like Aristotle and Plato. And actually, both Aristotle and Plato mention him. They both name him Epimenides, an actual guy that we can find in history. Like so much of Greek ancient history, the story of Epimenides is kind of shrouded in legend and myth mixed in with tradition. But the story I'm about to read to you is based on an account that was recorded as actual history by a fellow named Diogenes Laertius in the third century AD. And he's going to tell us the history and the story of this altar to an unknown God. And this I find fascinating because it wasn't just there by mistake. Athens, I am now reading. Athens was the subject of a terrible plague, and the city elders were at a loss to know how to abate it. They believed the city was under a curse because they were guilty of treachery against the followers of Cylon, who had sought to overthrow the Athenians. They were slayed after they had been promised an amnesty. So the Athenians had tried sacrificial offerings to all their various gods, but to no avail. Turning to the oracle for wisdom, an oracle is a priestess in this case, someone who has direct communication supposedly with the gods. The priestess said that there was another god who remained unappeased by their treachery. Who was this unknown god? The priestess did not know. 
but advised them that they should send a ship to the island of Crete and fetch a man called Epimenides who would know how to appease that offended God. Now the reason they believed that there was another God who had not been appeased was the fact that they couldn't stop the plague. And they were sacrificing to all their various gods, but the plague continued. And so they were told by this priestess, well, then there must be another one. There's one you missed. There's one you skipped. There's one you're not aware of because you still have a plague. Reading again. Athens was already known as the city of philosophers, but what amazed Epimenides as he arrived in Athens from Piraeus was that the approach road was lined with images of many gods, gods in their hundreds collected from the theologies of all the peoples that were surrounding them. Epimenides postulated that indeed there must still be an unknown God, unknown to them, who was great enough and good enough to do something about the plague if they would invoke his help. But the elders questioned, how could they call upon a God whose name was unknown? So Epimenides responded that any God good and great enough to do something about that plague is probably also great and good enough to smile on their ignorance if they acknowledged their ignorance and then called upon him. You get it? I mean, he's a good God. He's a great God. If he was great enough that he could stop the plague, then he's also good enough that he would understand that you're ignorant of what his name is. So go worship him anyway, even though you don't know who he is. Epimenides advised the elders to seek a sign from the unknown God. He told them to graze a flock of healthy sheep of different colors, some white and some black, on a grassy slope of Mars Hill. And he then prayed something along the lines of, O thou unknown God, behold the plague affecting the city, and if indeed you feel compassion to forgive and help us, behold the flock of sheep, reveal your willingness to respond, I plead, by causing any sheep that pleases you to lie upon the grass instead of grazing. Choose white if white pleases you, black if black delights you. And those you choose we will sacrifice to you, acknowledging our pitiful ignorance of your name. And although it was the early morning when the sheep were their hungriest, they were unlikely to stop grazing, and yet before long some of the sheep settled down to rest. And these were separated from the remainder of the flock for the sacrificial offering. And Epimenides ordered stonemasons to construct altars on each animal's resting place. On each, following Epimenides' instruction, they inscribed the words agnostotheo, meaning the unknown god. And within a week, the Athenians that were stricken by the plague recovered. That's the background and the history of this altar to an unknown God. And that just has sat there for six centuries waiting for Paul to show up and say, that God, that one you don't know, that one who you have an altar to because he actually demonstrated himself to you, that's who I'm going to tell you about. Fascinating. Because that means that the sovereign God knew 600 years in advance that Paul was going to show up in Athens and not have any common background, language, history. Wasn't going to have the common scriptures, which we talked about last week. He needed a starting place. He needed a touchstone. He needed something so he could say, this is my entry. I'm now going to preach to you the real God and the real Christ and God planted it there six centuries in advance through Epimenides. That's a really sovereign God. That's a God who knows what he's doing. Okay, so now fast forward to Paul in Athens. 
Paul was pointing out that Yahweh was not some unknown foreign god, as his adversaries seemed to say. They had been worshiping Yahweh for six centuries. He was anticipated by Epimenides' altar to an unknown god. He was the very god who had already intervened to help them through their plague six centuries ago. And notice that even though they didn't know the God of creation, the real God, they did still worship. And I find that fascinating, that human beings will still worship whether they know the true God or not. In this case, they were still worshiping this unknown God. They just didn't know who it was they were worshiping. Paul says, it's Yahweh. He's been here the whole time. He's been planted right here in the midst of Athens. He's right here. You just don't know him. But you've been worshiping him. You've been sacrificing to him. Now I'm going to tell you who he is. That's great. Verse 24. He starts at the God who made the world and all things that are in it. What did he just do? He just wiped out the pantheon. He just said all those individual gods who were all gods over individual things, that's not the real God. The real God is the God of everything. The real God is not only the God of everything, he's the God who made everything. And he made everything for his own purposes, for his own glory. He owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. That's the God I'm talking about. The God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord, absolute, dominating, king over all of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Last week I told you that Athens was absolutely riddled with temples, altars and temples, a plenty everywhere. And Paul says, all that, everything that Athens is made up of, God's not in there. He's the God who made everything. He doesn't fit in your temple. In fact, if you have a God, you can fit in your temple. That's not a God. That's something you made with your hands and then erected in the temple that you made. So he is just line by line abolishing the mythology of Athens. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served with human hands. That's all they're doing. All they do all day is serve their various different gods. They're in constant service whether they're sacrificing on the altars, whether they're burning incense in their temples, whether they're making music to their gods, they are constantly serving with their human hands. Paul comes along and says, the real God isn't served by any of this stuff you're doing. Your temples are empty, your gods are vain, and your practice is nothing. He just mowed them to the ground. Just nothing. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. So he doesn't need anything. He's the one who gives to you. You are the needy one. You are the one who requires his help, his assistance, his kindness, his grace. He is not served by human hands because the very fact that you are serving your gods with your human hands indicates that your gods are needy. Your gods need things like, for instance, they need you to build them a temple. They need you to put them up on a platform. They can't walk. They can't talk. They can't hear. They need you to do stuff for them. Paul says, the real God doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need you. He pre-exists you. And you are utterly and completely dependent on him. He doesn't need you. You need him because he himself gives to all people life and breath and everything. So where did Paul start? He starts with creation and he moves on to the spirituality of God. He's not physical. He's not in physical temples. 
He's not a physical stone carving somewhere. And then he affirms the sufficiency of God in absolutely everything, which is a complete contradiction of everything that they would have believed. In other words, everything, as I've said, had its own God, and every portion of creation had a God over it. And yet Paul would say, the real God made everything and is the God of everything. He's the creator of everything. And unlike the Greek gods and the demigods who were all assigned lordship over some certain area of creation, Yahweh is lord over absolutely all of creation. It all belongs to him. It's not as though he needs anything. Listen to Psalm 50. I'm going to read verses 10 to 12. This is a great example of God explaining himself. This is God exegeting himself. God explains himself this way. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, mine. I know every bird of the mountain and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you For the world is mine and everything it contains. Okay, so that's the real God. That's Yahweh God. That's the God of the scripture. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of Paul. And he would not allow, and this is essential. I know that I'm talking a lot here, but if you get nothing else out of this morning, get this. Paul was not allowing the notion that Yahweh was a part of a pantheon anywhere. He wasn't trying to adapt Greek religious culture to Christianity. Instead, he was separating Christianity from the culture of Athens and then calling the Athenians to the real God out of that culture. Leave your culture, leave your gods, leave that vanity, leave that emptiness, and then come to the real God. Now, that's going to be important as we continue. I don't know if I'll get to it this morning. We may have to wait until next week to finally finish up. But God is completely sufficient. He's fully capable of providing everything for himself He's perfectly capable of giving himself whatever he desires and whatever he needs because absolutely everything is his. So Paul continues and says, he, the real God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why are you this old today and why do you live in Smyrna, Tennessee? Some of you. Some live in Nashville. Why? Because God determined it. God decided what day you were going to be born, how many heartbeats and how many breaths you get, what day you're going to die, the hour and the time of your death, and he determined the boundaries of your habitation all the days of your life. That's remarkable detail for God to be involved in in every single individual's life. But this is the same God who made everything and named everything, who calls every star of which there are billions, and he calls every one of them by name. The same way he knows every single individual he has ever made. He made them for a purpose. He knows what day they were going to be here. He knows what day they're going to die. He knows when he's going to judge them and why he's going to judge them. He knows who he's going to redeem and how he's going to bless them. He's established that. He's determined all of that. And that is Paul's argument. He is making God, Yahweh, completely individual and separate from the pantheon. He's not including Yahweh in the pantheon and saying, you've got all your gods, but let me give you another choice. Let me give you another option. If you're looking for a god to worship, how about this one? No, instead he says, The God that I'm presenting to you, the unknown God, the one who has already been here among you, but you just didn't even know him, that God is the creator of absolutely everything. He has made from one man, Adam and Eve. He's made every nation of mankind. 
and they live on the face of the earth, and he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So whether Jew or Gentile, every one of them were all made by God. He determined when they're going to live on the earth, where they're going to live on the earth, and that is the only singular, all-sufficient God that you Athenians have been worshiping ignorantly. Good argument so far, huh? I mean, it's a fascinating argument. Verse 27. He made all, everybody. He made everybody of every nation. He determined where their boundaries were going to be, verse 27, so that they would seek God. That's the purpose. That's the reason they're here. If perhaps they might look for him, grope for him, and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. Us. Okay, again, that makes Yahweh unique because the pantheon of Greek gods was separate. They lived on Mount Olympus. They lived where the gods all lived, separate. And yet Paul says the real God, Yahweh God, isn't far from any of us, which I think is another indication that he's getting at, you know, this altar to an unknown God has been in your midst now for 600 years and you've been worshiping that God without knowing that God he's right here in your midst he's not far from any of us in other words although Yahweh is the God of the Jews he remains available to all mankind regardless of race he's not far from anybody verse 28 for in him we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. What did Paul just do? Paul just demonstrated yet again, I know your culture. I've already done the Socratic method on you. I've already demonstrated the background of this altar that Epimenides is responsible for. And now I'm going to quote some of your poets. I'm going to show you that I'm not speaking out of ignorance. Because what do Greeks love? They love wisdom. He's demonstrating that he knows Greek wisdom. He knows Greek culture. He knows Greek philosophy. He knows Greek poets. He understands all of that. So they're not able to say to him, well, you're just making this stuff up because you're ignorant. Or you're just a superstitious Jew in our midst. Instead, he's demonstrating that he is fully conversant in Greek culture. And that is where we will pick up next week. Otherwise, I'd have to keep you here for another 45 minutes, and I won't do that to you. What was Paul doing? Paul was in Athens preaching the gospel. Why was he preaching the gospel yet again? That old, old story? Well, that's what we're going to sing about. I love to tell the story.
listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.